Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folta. I'm a professor of molecular biology and genomics, and I'm a podcast host seven years now, believe it or not, and very excited about communicating the exciting things in biotechnology and so uh, grateful to have a front seat at watching it unfold. And today's a great example. Uh, last week, we talked about alpha-gal syndrome, which is this allergy spectrum that's associated with a small molecule, and all molecules are small, but you get the picture, a small oligosaccharide, two little sugars stuck together that trigger an allergic response to meat. Now, people who have this condition also cannot receive a graft or an organ transplant, tissue transfer, xenography from a bovine or porcine source from beef or pigs. But Revivacor, a company, has solved that problem with the Gal-Safe Pig. And we're speaking to Dr. John Bianchi, who's the Vice President of Product Development today. Welcome to the podcast, John. Hey, thank you, Dr. Folta. Yeah, I really appreciate having you on. I had a great conversation with Dr. Wilson last week, and um, I'm excited to talk to you about uh, more about how we're going to solve the problem. So I started tapping into what alpha-gal syndrome was, but could you give us more of a background on what exactly is this that you've solved? So uh, alpha-gal syndrome is a condition where uh, individuals end up with an elevated level of anti-gal IgE and uh, immunoglobulin E is significant because it's responsible for anaphylaxis, anaphylactic reactions. And uh, folks get sen sensitized by the bite of a tick. Um, it's been well described in the literature that the, the Lone Star tick in the southeastern United States is the, the tick responsible. But there are ticks all over the world that uh, cause the same thing. What are the symptoms that people can expect in the range? Like it can be from very simple to very dangerous, but can it be permanent? Yes, I have spoken to uh, patients, alpha-gal syndrome patients, who have had the condition for well over uh, 10 years. There's an article that I uh, read from a Norwegian journal where a, a kid at the age of eight reported that he had been uh, bit by a tick um, and he couldn't eat meat for uh, uh, decades. And then in his 70s, he went to have surgery done and had a severe anaphylactic reaction after um, a mammalian surgical product was introduced. So yes, for some, some people, it can the persistence of the alpha-gal uh, IgE can last for a long time. And as Dr. Wilson said, any kind of tick challenge will uh, 
uh, re-elevate those levels if they are beginning to, to decline. But I should say that for some patients, it has been documented that their IgE levels decline over time and they know they can tolerate the consumption of red meat. Well, aside from IgE, you have other immunoglobulins that can be expressed in response to this tick insult um, in response to alpha-gal. So what are some others and what are their prevalence? And great question, uh, Kevin. The It is well known that the human immune system is primed to attack anything that has uh, alpha-gal on it. So we have uh, circulating antibodies to alpha-gal, anti-gal IgG, anti-gal IgM, uh, anti-gal IgA, uh, it's a hundred percent prevalence of those immunoglobulins in the in the human circulating system. Every human has it. Every immunocompetent human has it. Oh, so, what is the GalSafe pig? So, the GalSafe pig has been engineered to where the GGTA1 gene—that's the gene that's responsible for the expression of alpha-gal—has been inactivated. Uh, Revivacor and its uh, cadre of scientists here has inserted an endogenous pig gene into the GGTA1 gene to effectively turn it off, inactivate it. Um, this was done to the human gen genome. They the the theory, the prevailing theory goes 28 million years ago, and uh, uh, due to a, um, uh, 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 a pathogenic uh, virus that they think was happening 28 million years ago. And those humans that survived had this mutation uh, because the, the anti-gal antibodies uh, allowed them to survive. And what is xenografting? And how is this different from, say, something like xenotransplantation? So the regulatory uh, definition of xenografting is taking... Uh, uh, transplantation of material from one species to the other, uh, such as from pig to human, but xenografting, all the cells have been killed, they're not viable, they're dead. Whereas xenotransplantation, those pig cells are uh, alive. Um, so that's, that's the main, major difference between the two. Okay, so we're talking about when we, because this is an important part of this, is that we do use pig hardware in human therapies. And so when you're talking about, um, you know, say heart valves, things like that, what are some current examples of things that are xenografts versus xenotransplants? So um, there's a, a variety of xenografting projects, uh, products. Uh, heart valves are one of those, and they come from both uh, bovine and porcine sources. Uh, there's a variety of uh, sheets, pericardial sheets that are used for hernia procedures. Um, there's uh, bone products that are used for in dentistry and orthopedics. Uh, there, there's even some uh, new products coming out uh, for tendon repair. Uh, so those are all examples of xenografts that you, you could also consider 
um, hemostatic a- agents. These are uh, agents that are commonly used in surgery to soak up blood and things like that. Um, uh, uh, are are gelatinized uh, uh, products that come from uh, cows and pigs. I guess that you know some folks might be wondering where xenography came from, and you know how he wandered into that. But basically, the idea that we're using a lot of pig hardware in human and, and bovine hardware in human application. So, what does the what applications does the Galsafe pig have in things like xenotransplantation? So, xenotransplantation is the transplantation of uh, uh, live cells, and this is. Revivacor's major focus. We are very interested in uh, designing pigs so we can take the organs or cells from those pigs and uh, implant them into humans. So for example, um, uh, kidney transplants or uh, heart transplants or lung transplants, we, we think the ideal source is the pig. And uh, we are diligently working on creating, uh, establishing lines of pigs that would be immunogenically quiescent when taken, uh, implanted into people. So we, we have, uh, the, the background genetics on all of, uh, uh, these advanced lines is the gal safe pig. It's critical that the GGTA one gene be knocked out and that these pigs don't produce alpha gal, but, uh, for some xenografting applications, that's good enough uh, for nerve and skin and uh, perhaps even cartilage. That may be uh, sufficient, but if you're going into a whole organ where functionality is much more complex, then more genetic manipulations need to be done. And uh, Revivacor has established some advanced lines where we've had uh, implanted some of our pig hearts into um, primates, and those primates have survived for as long as six months. Uh, Kidneys is the same way. So we're very confident that we will soon have a pig online that will solve the organ shortage problem. Well, that's really interesting because I didn't think about that. It's not just alpha-gal that's the problem. There's other proteins or other signatures on these cells that can provide a basis for rejection. But it seems like they've been working on that for a long time. Has that been something that preceded the alpha-gal question, or are they kind of going hand in hand? So so one of the, the, the historically, um, uh, Revivacor established the alpha-gal knockout pig in 2000. And one, because we saw it as the primary barrier to to and going into xenotransplantation, and um, pit, those alpha gal knockout pigs did much. The organs from those pig, pigs survived for a much longer period than, say, a, a, a standard agricultural pig, because uh, obviously. Um, the the alpha gal mediated immune response wasn't there, but there were other immune response, responses that led to the degradation of the organ. Back when I was in grad school, back in the 1990s, there was a xenography unit on or xenography unit on the floor where I was, 
and uh, I was in a molecular biology cancer complex, that kind of thing. And they were working on porcine organ transplants even back then. And so it was something that came to mind that maybe there were uh, that that the questions of xenography and, and using pig parts was something that was being conditioned for human use long before the alpha gal question. Kevin, there are a lot for for xenografts. These are um, uh, materials where the bio, the cells are dead or removed. Uh, there is. Uh, decellularization technologies. In fact, um, I cut my teeth in the medical world working for a company right in your backyard, uh, Regeneration Technologies, and I, I helped establish the BioCleanse process, which is a phenomenal decellularization process uh, and sterilization process for human tissue. And you might think, well, just put the the uh, standard pigs through that process and wash out the alpha gal, right? So problem solved. But the challenge is that the alpha gal is intricately bound, chemically bound to the collagen and laminin structures. So there's no way you're going to wash out the alpha gal. Um, and this has been demonstrated by lots of clinical evidence, particularly with biospr bioprosthetic heart valves, um, but more significantly with gelatin. Gelatin is, is uh, the harshest decellularization process there is. It's not even a decellularization process. It's a denaturization process. Yet the, the alpha-gal in gelatin persists and has resulted in... Um, uh, anaphylactic reactions in patients it, for surgical products, as well as surprisingly, and Dr. Wilson talked about this last week, uh, with gel caps. Um, uh, and there are case reports of people going into anaphylaxis after eating gummy bears, if you can believe that. <laughs> yeah, I can. I mean, I, I think it's surprising how many places you find gelatin. Yeah. And and it really is. And and that's what was so exciting about talking to you about this. It's an excellent follow-up because we talk about these ideas of the decellularized graphs and these kinds of things. Those are becoming really common. And to still be able to decellularize it, yet use that scaffold, but the scaffold still contains the alpha gal, still limits the potential of these products in uh, human application. And so, so this is a really big deal. Um, just kind of going back historically, kind of along the same line is when did this whole idea start to begin to take apart the alpha gal problem? So um, back, Revivacor uh, received, uh, we, we were a standalone company and we received a grant for xenotransplantation and the folks that were here, I was not here at the time, uh, put their sights on figuring out uh, how to solve the problem of hyperacute rejection. And there was reports in the literature that the hyperacute rejection that was occurring with these organs was due to alpha-gal. So uh, the first step for the folks at Revivacor at the time um, was to delete or inactivate the GGTA1 gene that's responsible for expression of alpha-gal. Um, in, interestingly enough, I, I arrived at Revivacor in 2006, 
and uh, per started to pursue um, regulatory a regulatory pathway to get the pig approved. And at that time, alpha-gal syndrome was not even part of the conversation. Uh, we didn't know about it, and there were no published papers about it. It was only years later that uh, we, we decided to include alpha-gal syndrome as part of our um, uh, regulatory submission package and uh, include, expand our use of the gal-safe pig to include not just medical products, but also food products. Okay, so we, we're talking to John Bianchi. He's the Vice President of Product Development at Revivicor, and we're talking about the Gal Safe Pig. And this is a pig that can be used in different xenography and as well as uh, can be consumed by folks with Alpha-Gal Syndrome because it's been genetically engineered to not produce the Alpha-Gal oligosaccharide. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, Folka, what are you doing? I'm reading about a biotechnology conference in Bolivia. It's coming up on June 16th through 20th, 2021. You're traveling to Bolivia? Nice job, Dr. Super Spreader. Don't go in public on airplanes and die. <laughs> no, not at all. It's virtual, which is great. All of the science and none of the hassle and expensive travel. Plus, no more conference swag bags and tumblers to end up in the landfill. It's an information exchange without the carbon and plastic crap footprint. But your Spanish is awful. How can this possibly be productive? I've been to several scientific conferences in Spanish-speaking countries, and it's a great way for me to practice my Spanish, especially since Sabado Gigante went off the air. It's amazing how well you can understand because the context is science, and a huge number of people speak Spanish anyway, so... It's a great way for us to practice ways to communicate with a substantial number of people in the world. Plus, Bolivia is a cradle where many of our best fruits and vegetables come from. Tomatoes, potatoes, lots of others. I don't know much about Bolivia, only that when I was a kid, my mom smacked me when I said Lake Titicaca. That's the problem. Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, and other South American nations have amazing biological diversity, spectacular agriculture, in emerging biotechnological industries. They're working hard to make farming more sustainable and develop the most recent technologies. There's a lot of great science coming out of South America and Bolivia. But where can I learn more? Just visit biotechnologiabolivia.com for more information. The conference will cover everything from environment to medicine to nutrition to nanotechnology. Or follow on Facebook at Congreso Bolivia Innova. This is an unpaid advertisement as a favor for the conference. Looking forward to seeing you there. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with John Bianchi. He's the Vice President of Product Development for Revivicor. And we're talking about the Galsafe pig. And it's a pig whose parts and whose meat can be used by humans without inducing an alpha-gal response. So let's talk about that GGTA gene for a second. Uh, when you go back to the nuts and bolts of how that was done, was this an RNAi silencing or an anti-sensor? How was this originally done? 
Um, it was uh, done by homologous recombination. So uh, a, a vector was constructed and transfected into a pig cell line. Um, and uh, a selectable marker gene is part of the, uh, uh, the sequence. And cells were selected and subsequently uh, cloned. And we established um, uh, several lineage progenitors that led to the current herd, the current herd size. All, since those lineage progenitors were established by cloning, all subsequent animals have been uh, promulgated by natural breeding. So we're in our, I want to say, 11th generation from the lineage progenitors. Wow, that that's really interesting that it was done by homologous recombination. I, I mean, I'm I kind of am in touch with the animal literature, but didn't know that that was even feasible back then. Yeah, it was old school, Kevin. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I I think if we were to do it today, we'd probably end up using CRISPR Cas9. Yeah, it seems to be the easier solution on this. But the homologous recombination did that. Uh, did the construct and like the sequence that was there, did it emulate the human mutations so that it was something that was something reflected already in nature? Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, it was uh, a, a piece of uh, endogenous pig DNA uh, along with a selectable marker gene that was uh, inserted into the, the GGTA1 gene that effectively um, uh inactivated the gene consistent to how the human gene was inactivated um, uh, 28 million years ago. <laughs> That's really neat. Now, as I understand it, the pig was approved for recently for use in humans. Now, is that for xenography or is that for consumption as well? Gr great question. So um, as far as the approval goes, uh, we, we have approval from the FDA to, uh, uh, sell and provide, uh, food products immediately. Those food products could be on the market, uh, as soon as we identify, identify a business partner who will distribute them. Um, as far as the medical products go, uh, those, those need, to, and this, this, this is for any, um, xenograft as well as a xenotransplantation product, um, they get, need to go through an additional regulatory step to get cleared by one of the FDA human use centers. So for example, uh, if it's a device product like a heart valve or a scaffold material, the Center for uh, CDRH is the acronym, would have to approve that product uh, derived from the Galsafe pig. Um, if it's a, an organ or viable cell product um, from the Galsafe pig, it would also need to get approved through the Human Use Center, uh, likely CBER. And it's, it's not th that approval process has the potential to be. Um, uh, relatively quick, I think, but it would depend, it, it, the FDA would have a voice in this and we just have to determine what that pathway is. Well, speaking, you know, the FDA, they're the ones who regulate a significant part of this process. And how was the FDA 
participating in the approval process with you? Like, how, uh, could you talk about the process and was it especially onerous or, you know, were they partners with you through this and, or was the pig essentially approved as a drug? So, um, the, interestingly enough, the, the regulations on genetically engineered fit pigs, if you read them, um, you'd wonder how the heck does a does a uh, genetically engineered pig fit in this regulation because the regulations are designed for a small molecule drug. Uh, fortunately, I feel the FDA was very collaborative with us. Um, they did not make things easy. I want to be clear about that. We we they definitely um, held their ground to maintain public interest to ensure that uh, public safety was number one and animal safety was one number one. I don't, I don't fault them f- uh, at all for, for doing that. Um, but at the same time, they work closely with us to make sure uh, that getting a genetically engineered pig approved under the um, uh, new animal drug uh, application process was as seamless as possible. You know, in hindsight, looking back on it, I think we both learned. I don't, there, there are a couple of precedents um, of other animals being approved, but nothing like our pig where it's approved for both food and uh, therapeutic use. Uh, in the end, I think we both learned a lot. I think if we had to do or, or when we go to our next application, it will be much quicker. Um, we have a framework for how to go about uh, doing this. So for our more complex genetics, I would not expect it to take as long as it took the Galsake pig. And about how long did that total process take from beginning to end? Keeping, keeping in mind that at one time, Revivacor was venture capital funded and at, at, at times we struggled um, and so we couldn't necessarily spend all our time working on uh, a GALSAFE regulatory submission. But from my first meetings with the FDA, which was in 2007, to approval was 2020. But to, in the FDA's defense, we also uh, enhanced our uh, intended use to include food. And that was added around the ni- 2019 timeframe and it got approved in 2020. All in all, I, I don't have, uh, I, I actually uh, give kudos to the FDA uh, for their review process, frustrating at times, frustrating um, that they put the bar so high for us to jump. And I just hope that the next sponsor of a genetically engineered pig, they hold them as accountable to the data set as they held us. Yeah, and I and I won't ask you to comment on this because I understand your position in this. But when you talk about you know thirteen, fourteen years to get a good solution approved, it just kind of says you know in the days of COVID, right, where we can have a vaccine within a year, that there must be a better way. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, in, in in terms of the cost to the company, and in terms of the time and the and the, you know, I would love to see this go a little bit quicker, and I don't know what that's going to take, but. Uh, what about uh, other innovations that are happening uh, along the line of alpha-gal? Has there been any attempts in 
to use gene editing or do you think that that uh, there are better improved versions that can come along through using modern tools? Um, absolutely. I, I mean, part of the, the toolbox of Revivacore is to use all those uh, uh, modern gene editing tools. Um, we don't just use uh, homologous recombination when we establish lines. We use the entire spectrum of tools in our toolbox. Yeah, I guess I, I just thinking in terms of, um, you know, you're 11 generations in, but to be broadening the genetic base, you know, you can do it easier today than you could then, I think. Yes. And, and, and theoretically speaking, um, if we decided that we wanted to make a, let's say, a GGTA1 knockout uh, cow, for example, um, I think we could have that as you well know, Kevin, we could have that cow probably on the ground within a year. Um, uh, and, you know, certainly there's a long lead time to get it through the FDA, but I would not expect it to be anything like the gal safe pig. We know what I'm, what we're doing now and the FDA knows uh, best how, what, what's the types of data they're going to be looking for. So I think between, since both parties know what's going on, today, I think that regulatory approval process would be much quicker. And you kind of led on to this a little bit before about the demand for such products, especially, let's say, the meat products for consumption. Is this something that you would anticipate would be in grocery stores, like in the gluten-free section, but, you know, an alpha-gal safe section, and that there would be a substantial demand for the product? Or do you imagine this being a real niche, almost like a prescription food type product? Uh, great question. I, I, I would be surprised if, uh, uh, Galsafe food products ever make it into the grocery store. Um, but I can, I can see that there could be a potential specialty market, um, uh, within, uh, like, let's say mail order or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I just think this is wonderful. I'm real so optimistic that when you we that we find a problem, an unusual one like alpha gal syndrome, and then science creates a solution so that people can live almost normal lives, plus all of the opportunities that can be used uh, in terms of therapeutics and all the parts that can be used. Which my mom had a uh, a pig valve for a while, and so I mean I know this stuff happens all the time. But what's next in the pipeline for Revivicor? Is there other interesting uh, innovations that, that are targeting different human ailments. Um, like I said earlier, the, the, our primary focus is bringing pigs, uh, unique lines to, uh, for organ replacement therapies. So we're really interested in healing patients who need an organ transplant. Uh, we, we, we're keenly interested in bringing kidneys uh, pig kidneys to patients in need, as well as pig hearts to patients in need. And um, uh, some of our uh, preclinical studies with uh, primates, non-human primates, is demonstrating uh, great success in those areas. That's really great, because I know there is a shortage on many organs, especially things like kidneys. And are these meant to be kind of temporary placeholders until they identify a donor or are these in, intended to be permanent replacements? I, I, I think both are currently on the table for discussion that uh, we could both have 
uh, a bridge to transplant, um, uh, as well as the potential for them lasting uh, permanently. That's really great because, you know, and I don't know the number off the top of my head, and maybe you do, but how much of a demand is there for organs that goes unsatisfied that the Revivacor products may satisfy? Oh, I, I, I haven't looked at the numbers in a while, but I, I believe it to be in the hundreds of thousands of people that are on the organ waiting list. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty wild. It hits close to home because my grandfather had a heart transplant that he waited a long time in a hospital bed waiting for that cooler to show up. Right. right. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, and he wasn't the only one in, in the ward. I mean, there were, you know, four guys in there waiting for someone to have a motorcycle accident. And, right. um, you know, right. this, and, this, and, and all those helmet laws have really reduced the, uh, donor pool. And that's, and I know you're not being facetious. That's true. Um, you know, but, uh, uh, but this is really, really great. I'm so glad that we were able to talk about this because it, it's an interesting set of problems that there's a great biotechnology solution to solve. And that's what the podcast is all about. So thank you so much for joining me today, John. No problem, Kevin. Hey, you didn't ask me where I graduated, where I got my PhD. Where'd you get your PhD? I uh, did my bachelor's degree at Georgia Tech uh, with, as, with a, uh, a degree in mechanical engineering. And then I moved over and there'll be a lot of booze from Gainesville. I moved over to Auburn and got my master's in material science and engineering. But then I came to my senses and I went to uh, pursued my PhD at the University of Florida. So I Oops. am a Gator. When, when were you here? Uh, moved to Gainesville uh, around 1996, and I started my PhD program in 1999. And I worked for uh, while pursuing my PhD. I worked for Regeneration Technologies until 2006. Okay, so we overlapped here a little bit. That's a uh, that's pretty cool. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because it gives you a little uh, little connection to the area. That's really cool. Yeah, so, yeah. I I, uh, I know Gainesville well. I lived there in Hale Plantation uh, for a while. Oh, I know exactly where that. Is. Yeah, we, I live out in Archer, so I'm I'm out okay. past Hale. <laughs> you yeah. said okay. You said okay, like you've been here. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, actually, sell at the Hale Plantation Farmers Market every weekend. So that's. Uh, oh okay. Okay. So we're we're over there. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. And then best wishes to you and Revivicor and future innovations. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kevin, for, uh, for reaching out and glad we were able to do this interview. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. As always, we really appreciate your reviews, your uh, kind sharing with other people. Um, spread the word. The number of downloads grows almost weekly. And the popularity of the podcast gains every week as we enter our seventh year of weekly podcasts. Hard to believe. Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. 
and support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.